Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Shutter Island, the new Martin Scorsese film. And here with me in the Slate studio is Troy Patterson. Hello, Troy. Hey, Dana. Who is our beloved TV critic. And uh, Troy, I'm very, very glad to have you here to spoil this movie with me, although we didn't get to see it together, unfortunately. But this is a movie that really, really needs a spoiler special podcast, because in the review, essentially, you'll have to give, start giving away twists the minute you start talking about the movie. It's that twisty of a plot. So listeners, you should just regard this as my true review, and whatever appears on Slate will be some sort of a trailer teaser for the movie. So Troy, first of all, what's, what's your just emotional reaction to the movie? Like it? Not like it? Recommend it? Not? Uh, I like it with uh, substantial reservations. Uh, that is, I think I like it. Um, but you don't know that you would recommend it? No, it's it's an eccentric film. It's Although eccentric might even be slightly dignified, but we'll uh, uh, afford the movie some dignity because it's directed by Martin Scorsese. I guess that the movie succeeds on its own terms, but those terms are pretty goofy. Right. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I almost feel like it's better on paper, or maybe I feel sort of the reverse. I feel like I couldn't really recommend it to people. I didn't enjoy it while I was watching it, but I like thinking about it, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. It's it's a movie that sort of reads better in one's mind or one's memory or or on paper than I think it did on the screen. And yet it's it's smart enough and tricky enough that I think some of my criticisms were actually answered and you know the rug was pulled out under from under me enough that at times arguments that I was building up against the movie sort of came back to, to bite me. And I think when we explain the, the story, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Do you want to start explaining the story and I'll jump in? Uh, why don't you explain the story since you're – I saw this movie at the end of December. Oh, that's right. My, that would be unfair. Uh, and I only saw it last night. Okay. So as we begin, if you've seen the trailer, I think you know this much. This, these, these two marshals, right, federal marshals played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo are heading out on a boat to this remote, gloomy island, Shutter Island, which houses a – Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And we're in the 1950s, right? It's 1954. 54, right. So so height of the Cold War kind of period and very much that mood. And these two hard-bitten cops are talking aboard the boat about the disappearance of a woman, a mad woman who's locked in this asylum. Who's Rachel accused, Solando. Rachel Solando is her name, and the name becomes important, who's accused of, or, or did, supposedly, uh, drown her own three children, right? And this is why she's locked up in this asylum. And mysteriously, although there's no way to escape from this place, and it's heavily fortified and guarded on every side, she's vanished from her cell with no signs of the lock being broken, and they can't find her on the island, and that's why these guys are being called out, right? So after they get to the island, now, can you can you take it Somewhere from there, things start to get weird. And how did they first start to get weird? It's because, well, Ben Kingsley, who's the director of the asylum, refuses to let them see certain files. He's being very obfuscatory about the investigation. Um, Max von Sydow is also on the premises. I forget if he's – is he Ben Kingsley's superior? Yes, and he's just generally sinister. He's, he's an ex-Nazi, right? <laughs> Max von Sydow is an ex-Nazi, not someone you want to mess with from the, mess with from the beginning. And – he is also standing in the way of these guys' investigation. But I'm trying to figure out at what point in the movie things start to get really... I mean, at this point, we think that we've got your standard cop investigation movie, right? We've got something sinister going on on the island and these two good guys investigating it. But at what point do we start to lose our bearings as to, as to what's real? I guess it's because Leonardo DiCaprio's character, whose name is Teddy Daniels, um, starts to have these dreams about his dead wife, who we hear in the very, very first scene aboard the boat, um, died in a fire in their apartment, which was set by an arsonist. Named as we 
Go ahead. As we learn later, right? Or what, we learn point? right away that she died in a fire in the apartment, okay. right? And that that's sort of his backstory. That's his hard-bitten cop guy backstory that right. we sort of think is just going to remain his stable backstory for the entire movie. But but then it starts shifting like crazy. And I'm not going to be able to keep track of all the shifts. But I think the important thing to know is that at a certain point, it starts to become questionable whether Leo. DiCaprio's character is sane or not. Yes. Now, at first, there's an interim period where you just think that he's being gaslighted, that Ben Kingsley and the others are conspiring against him and giving him psychotropic drugs and his cigarettes and his food to make him think that he's going insane and to keep him on the island so that they won't be uncovered. This is a substantial portion of the movie that you think that's the case, right? But that still remains... So he's still sort of stable in your mind as the guy that you thought he was. But things start to get really angel heart, like about <laughs> two-thirds of the way through. <clears throat> When we realize that, in fact, now here you you can take it away because I'm tired of summarizing. When we realize that, oh, I get to spoil do yeah, we're spoiling things now. Uh, It's that it is in fact Teddy Daniels who is nuts, um, who is he's bonkers. He is uh, not even Teddy Daniels, in fact, right? Yes, in fact, Um, he is a patient or an inmate at this um, sort of. East Coast Alcatraz, um, and and has been the entire time. In fact, he hasn't been on Shutter Island for only two days, as he thinks he's been there for two years. Right, um, and the entire institution is uh, kind of enacting this role playing game, allowing him to think that he is an investigator, the deputy U.S. marshal, sort of pursuing this case. Um, they're hoping that this will <clears throat> bring him some closure uh, to lift some. <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> they feel that this will bring him some closure to lift some um, psychobabble straight from the, the script, um, some closure that will allow him to heal himself and thus avoid a lobotomy. And so there's there's still so many twists within that twist. So Mark Ruffalo, who we thought was his loyal partner the entire time, but during the middle section of the movie we thought might be a guy who was conspiring with the, the bad dudes at, at the asylum, actually turns out to be, is it in a third twist, a good dude at the asylum. He's a doctor who's the the primary psychiatrist for Teddy Daniels, who is in reality named, did we reveal this yet? Andrew Latis, dun, right? Dun, dun. Which is an anagram. And there's this moment, which I have to say I love, where Sir Ben Kingsley whips the cloth cover off of a whiteboard. <laughs> and we see that, that many of the important characters' names, at least four of the important characters' names, are, are anagrams for one another. And that I don't know if they're saying that they made up this anagram name for him as part of the backstory, the closure story, or is it something that his insane mind invented? I don't know exactly why they have to be anagrams. Is perhaps part of the problem with the movie that it doesn't quite matter? Right. Yeah. We never actually get back to the origin story of the moment that a bunch of shrinks are sitting around saying, hey, let's do a closure pretend game where we you know, walk this psycho through this whole... We don't really ever hear about that. And in fact, the cloud of sinisterness never lifts from over... The, uh, the people who direct the institution, right, from Ben Kingsley and Mark Ruffalo and Max von Sydow and all these people. And so the end has this strange feeling where they're both benevolent figures that are trying to help this crazy guy get through his trauma, which we haven't even gotten to what the trauma is yet. So, they're, but they're, they're, so they are sinister at the end, and there is the implication that he's going to be lobotomized because he's not better enough. God, I feel bad that I'm spoiling this right now, but it's a spoiler special. I'm allowed. Um, <laughs> And so, so I like that ambivalence at the end, that, that the doctors remained kind of freaky and scary, but also kind of legitimately trying to help this guy. I thought at the end that the doctors were relatively benevolent presences. Um, but the but last image of the movie, besides just seeing the lighthouse at Shutter Island, is watching him walk off with a big dude with an ice pick who's about to give him a lobotomy. Yeah, but that's 
<laughs> That's the way it internal goes. Internal desolation. It's I 1954. Think. Them's the breaks. <laughs> uh, I would further add, on top of you've already done this sort of triple sow cow of twists <laughs> explaining the film, and I landed it beautifully. <laughs> one of the, I think, among the problems is that the paranoia gets really far too paranoid, um, in that you know this this sort of spiraling conspiracy at some points seems to involve uh, the atomic bomb and the Red Scare. and Honestly, like, all of that felt a little bit tacked on by a screenwriter trying to give this more historical weight than it really needed to have. Yeah. You know, I mean, the movie feels plenty um, Cold War-ish, you know, just from the, the mood itself and from the fact that it's a story about paranoia. And all the great paranoid movies of the 50s, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, these kind of, you know, Cold War paranoia horror movies didn't have to mention the Cold War per se. Right. right. I would say that uh, Dennis Lehane has said of uh, of his book, um, the novel Shutter Island, that he was going for uh, kind of Bronte sisters' version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where this felt to me a bit more like a Samuel Fuller version of Gaslight. Yeah, those are both very good reference points for it. And in fact, I mean, the, the references that are consciously cited and that Scorsese mentions in the in the press notes for this movie are everywhere. And that's kind of what I mean about it being more interesting on paper or in your mind. I mean, he is an incredible film archivist and historian, right? Martin Scorsese really knows his shit when it comes to that. And he has a great production designer, Dante Ferretti. He has a great editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. So it all kind of comes together beautifully, but it doesn't end up feeling to me like there's that much substantial there. The mood is beautifully created. And in fact... Everything that feels a little bit off and weird about the first hour or so of the movie, as you're watching it, you're sort of thinking, ah, he's really not nailing it. These guys don't really feel like FBI marshals. You know, this doesn't have the texture it needs. But then all that kind of in the, in the reversal kind of becomes great, right? Because it feels like a B-movie that's just slightly off and taking place in someone's mind, which is precisely what it's revealed to be. At the same time, though, that sounds so satisfying when I say it, but that doesn't make the first hour of the movie any more fun to watch. The B-moviness of this B-movie, despite being self-conscious, is kind of awkward. There are horrible, there are deliberately horrible cliches uh, throughout. Um, there's a moment on the boat where Mark Ruffalo asks uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, you married? You got a girl? And Leo says, I was, bitterly, is a way, in a way we've heard right. a zillion times before. Um, well, and a lot of the insane asylum stuff, too, before it starts to get interesting and twisty, is just really your standard, you know, bedlam. I don't know. I mean, I just I, I feel like the, the, the hell of the 1950s uh, mental institution is just a place that we've been many times before. Yes, yes, yes. And with these sort of ominous flashes of lightning in the sky. Um, oh, yeah, because the, the romantic you know, vision of, of weather matching the mood is exactly. all over this movie. I will say that they are very lovely lightning flashes. And I'm... I'm I'm almost willing to wager that, to some extent, Scorsese's um, using this sort of self-aware pulp melodrama as just as an excuse to do um, interesting experiments with light. Uh, There's one particular uh, scene, we haven't even gotten to this yet. This is a pretty dense movie. Yeah, we haven't spoiled a really major thing Uh, yet, but we'll get there. There's there's one scene where he's, um, Teddy Daniels is in this cave with... uh, a character played by Patricia Clarkson, who's supposed to be um, a doctor at the institution who is attempting to flee, has attempted to flee, is hiding. Um, and so they have this sort of potboiler con- conversation while the flames of the uh, roaring fire that she's built in her nook, in her rocky nook, uh, flicker at the front of the screen, which is really interesting. Um, you could kind of zone out on the 
on the flames. There's actually quite a bit of that, and with color too. I mean, he really he really does know how to put together a scene and use color and, and imagery in an incredibly striking way. And I love the dream sequences. A lot of the early dream sequences. I didn't like the content of the last big dream sequence that we'll talk about in a second. I thought it was too too hokey and too corny and went on for too long. But some of the early dream sequences with Michelle Williams, who plays Leonardo's dead wife. Um, he has these you know, strange hallucinatory flashbacks that later turn out to be deliberately drug-induced by the doctors where he imagines her presence. And those sequences look amazing. They actually remind me of something out of David Lynch in a way. They have that dreamlike quality that's convincingly dreamlike. There's, uh, there's some Lynch and some Fellini. And I think that uh, there's one long dream sequence there. It might be 20 minutes that I think is all the more spellbinding because at that point you don't know whether Teddy Daniels is – being drugged or going mad or both. Um, and so that's when the movie's really at its peak. Uh, um, I'd almost say that the movie's watching just for that one sort of destabilized and destabil- destabilizing sequence. Yeah, it's just it's too bad actually with the with the greatness of some of those dream sequences that, that the whole of the movie doesn't hold up. But let's let's spoil that last thing, and then I want to talk a little bit about DiCaprio and the performances and Scorsese's obsession with Leonardo DiCaprio. But the big thing that we haven't spoiled, which is the trauma that Teddy Daniels, aka Andrew Latus, aka Leonardo DiCaprio, goes back to and relives, and it's supposedly going to make him sane, is that in fact his wife didn't die in an arson-induced fire set by a guy named Andrew Latus. Andrew Latus is, in fact, him. There was no fire. This is all really Mulholland Drive when you think about it structurally, right? But it doesn't really feel like Mulholland Drive. But instead of the fire, in fact, what happened is that she was the murderess. His wife drowned their three children, who we didn't even know existed until, what, the last 20 minutes of the movie or something? And then he, in a fit of grief and rage, shot his wife and went nuts, right? And that's the thing that he has to go back and relive. Right. And that was the moment that the dream sequence stuff, to me, started to fall apart, I think, because that there was something really lurid and prurient and not in a good way about the, that, about the scene in which we see all of that stuff happen. For one thing, it had all been explained to us already by, by Ben Kingsley. So there was something very plodding and a little bit tawdry about the fact that we had to march through all of these horrible events that had just been described to us. Right. Um... I think that the movie might have lost me a bit earlier than that. Um, speaking of untoward luridness, there's also <laughs> in uh, this sort of swirl of madness, uh, this kind of Holocaust theme running through it. Oh, yeah. That is sort of uh, unsuccessful and <laughs> We forgot about tacky. the Holocaust. There's always got to be the Holocaust. Yet there is. There's a Holocaust flashback um, subplot where Leonardo DiCaprio's character also fought in the war and was present for various horrible scenes at the liberation of Dachau, right? And so we periodically have to go back there. And that was a place where the movies really started to remind me of Roman Polanski. I feel like he filmed the Holocaust a lot like Roman Polanski did in The Pianist with some of the same problems of, you know, sort of tawdry Hollywoodness and things that just seem too obviously cheesily set up to tug at the heartstrings like Dachau is not heartstring tugging enough as it is. You know, there were some images of him seeing these these dead children at Dachau and things that I, I just found kind of, yeah, un, untoward maybe. And the way it was used, just narratively used to sort of provide some psychologi- psychological backstory for his character. Right. You know, I've, I've been listening to us and this is not the most... Well, maybe this is the most linear summary of the movie that there could be. Um, <laughs> well, that's kind of the, the essence of, well, spoiler specials for one thing, but, but, but talking about this movie, you have to kind of talk about it in spirals or something, and I hope that hasn't made it too incomprehensible. Right. Well, there's, like a, there's a tonal co- coherence to it, but that might be the only kind. 
All right, let's take a break from this conversation for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Uh, our recommendation on Audible this week is very closely related to our movie. In fact, it's the book Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane, which was a noir novel that came out in, I believe, 2003 or something. It was very well received. And based on the storyline of this movie, it seems like it might be quite an interesting novel. Audible has it, uh, narrated by Tom Stecksulta. I don't know how you say his name, but he's apparently highly regarded as a reader because a lot of people are raving about him here on Audible. Um, The Mystic River, which is another Dennis Lehane novel made into a movie, is also available on Audible too. So give those a listen. And as regular listeners know, our deal with Audible is that if you sign up for a one book a month subscription through our URL, which is audiblepodcast.com slash slate, you get a credit good for one free book, which you can keep even if you cancel your subscription. So go there and check it out. The second thing I wanted to make note of this week is that we're in the middle of our podcast pledge drive, which if you've listened to any Slate podcast this week, you know what that's about. It's not a pledge drive where we ask you for any money. It's where we ask you for the thing we would need most from you, which is word of mouth. So uh, if you would, um, try to pass on the word about the spoiler special. If you like it, which I presume if you're listening to it, you do, tell somebody about it. And uh, since that's the main way that podcasts seem to get divulgated from one person to another, right, there's not a website for podcasts, there's not a radio station, there's not a TV station, there's just people telling you about a great podcast, then I hope you'll do that for us. And after you've told a friend or a family member or somebody you love or hate about our podcast, then please send us your conversion narrative. And the winner of the conversion narrative contest will get a to-be-disclosed but exciting gift. And in order to do that, you write us at podcasts at slate.com. So back to Shutter Island, Tori. We haven't talked about the performances yet, which is one thing I want to touch on, and uh, and also where this this sort of stands in, in Martin Scorsese's filmography. But can you help talk me through Scorsese's obsession with Leo DiCaprio? I think a big reason that I haven't been able to really get with what I would call late-period Scorsese from 2000 on or so is just that I don't share his passion for Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor. I don't hate DiCaprio, but I don't think he's got the kind of range that Scorsese credits him with. Um. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I think both here and in The Departed, uh, DiCaprio did most of his acting, does most of his acting by cringing. He sort of pinches his face together, and I've never quite been able to decide what kind of woodland animal he looks like. Um, but he sort of, I, I, I could imagine Scorsese responding to the, the sort of the tension and the hunched quality, the hunted um, sort of part of what DiCaprio projects. I mean, that's, he's always playing a very classic Scorsese hero, right? He's always playing someone who sort of seeks the truth but can't confront his own truth and is this kind of, you know, solitary loner with this repressed violence. It's, there's always that same kind of Scorsese hero. But they used to be played by people like Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro who, I mean, am I just being nostalgic? Those guys just have so much more cragginess to their face and so much more gravitas and presence than Leonardo DiCaprio could ever have. To me, DiCaprio is great when he's playing a kind of a, a trickster. I think he's great in Catch Me As You Can. But but I don't I don't see him in this kind of existential hero role. And yet that's all he seems to get from Scorsese. It would be interesting to look back and point to the moment uh, where the protagonist of Scorsese's films were the, – the actors were younger than the director himself. Maybe there's there's, there's some kind of weird energy. <laughs> At the moment that crisscross happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me meditate on that for a while. That's, 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 that's a good way to put it. But do you, do you share my discomfort with, with Leo as a tormented Scorsese hero? Uh, it's not discomfort so much as – 
disinterest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he just he doesn't hold the screen in that way, and yet he works so hard. I mean, he worked so hard at this role. You can just see it in, in every frame. And Patricia Clarkson says in these same production notes, she says, and Leo was always there, and he always gave 2,000%. And I was thinking, well, that's really 200 times more than he needed to give. <laughs> well, there's, there's also the problem that this is a deliberately cliche-ridden script, and so he's faced with this challenge of how to sort of refresh lines that are deliberately stale. Right. But there are actors who can get around that challenge. I mean, maybe it's it's a whole different story, but I'm thinking of Julianne Moore in, in the Todd Haynes movies. You know, I mean, she does nothing but play these kind of 50s cliched housewives, and she's fantastic, and she manages to get so much into those lines. I don't think it's impossible to say a cliched line in a way that's fresh, right? Let me sleep on that. <laughs> okay. I'm giving you a lot to sleep on. Um, any other performances you want to comment on or other, other details of the movie itself before we get on to Scorsese? I think you might have been um, a bit more enchanted with Mark Ruffalo than I was. I think he spends uh, sort of the first two-thirds of the movie just kind of smirking underneath a fedora. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'd have to see the movie again, which I'm not particularly in the mood to do right now. Like once was definitely enough for this week, but... I think Ruffalo puts some details into his performance that are kind of interesting. Either that or he was just bad in the first half. But I know that there was something interestingly off about his performance that was more than, to me, just squinting under a fedora. There were strange looks that he would give Leonardo DiCaprio, which later in the context of him being a psychiatrist who's walking him through some kind of staged, you know, fake replay, make a lot more sense. So I'm not going to stand up and say, you know, it's the greatest performance of all time, but I think that he was he was working hard at doing something interesting. Sir Ben Kingsley just sort of is Sir Ben Kingsley. Right. Did you know that he makes people call him Sir Ben? So I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> we need to we need to stick to it on this podcast. Um and Max von Sydow is he's got some nice chewy lines to work with. He's he's having fun. I mean, Max von Sydow is completely slumming, but he seems to be having a great time. As he I think he, he literally cackles. He's a cackling Nazi doctor. It's good work if you can get it. Well, let's move on to talking quickly about where this movie stands in Scorsese's filmography. Uh, I, I don't exactly know where to place it because, honestly, I've stopped following his movies in the 2000s the way that I would have before. I don't see a movie just because it's a Scorsese movie. And the last few that I have seen, I do sort of feel that his his his, car- his career is in something of a decline. Do you want to stand up for any of his recent movies? I think decline is a bit strong. I, I think that departed the slightly overrated and you know spoiled horribly by the rodent at the end is is a fine film and that gangs of new york though not wholly successful has like some visionary power to it um this is maybe in the 30th 40th percentile of <laughs> barton scorsese films i guess there's a temptation to compare it to cape fear but that's uh, just you know because of the sort of the the pulpiness of it and the the 50s vibe. But Cape Fear is clearly the superior movie, wouldn't you say? I guess so. But to me, Cape Fear still falls into the category of, oh, I can't believe that was a Martin Scorsese movie. Is that is that really all he can do anymore? I mean, this sounds this sounds unnaturally harsh. And there's quite a few movies that I've missed in the past 10 years because of this feeling. Now that I'm a movie critic, I'll see everything he does. But in the period before I started having to see movies for my job, I was not particularly moved to see Gangs of New York. I didn't see it. Bringing Out the Dead, never saw and Kundun, which you're fond of, I never saw either. I think, yeah, his, his Tibet movie is uh, underappreciated. Here's a question, though, as as a film critic. Do you think that we go harder on this film because it's a Martin Scorsese film? Or do we – are we more generous with it and 
uh, sort of assume that there's uh, kind of greater depth to the schlock here than perhaps there is. Like, I don't if, know. If this yeah. Were, for instance, if you know, if this were if this were a Ben Affleck film, uh, if this were a film directed by Ben Affleck, I think we'd write it off a bit more quickly. When in fact, Ben Affleck's uh, adaptation of Dennis Lehane's Gone Baby Gone is just slightly better than Shutter Island. Uh, I think it's slightly worse than Shutter Island, but it's it's certainly in the same category of schlock. And if if that movie had been directed by Martin Scorsese, I think there would be people that were hailing it. I mean, I think your question is the question to ask about someone who's become enveloped in this cloud of auteurness in the way that Martin Scorsese has. I mean, I don't know. It, I guess it depends on your feeling toward him and toward his later films, whether you elevate it because it's a Scorsese movie or or lower it because it's a Scorsese movie. I think I'm maybe tending to do the latter a little bit, but I also admit that I walked in with a great deal of curiosity, really wanting it to be good and really wanting to give it a chance. And I'm also sort of recommending that people see it if they're interested in in him and in his career and in in cinema in general. But I don't know that they're necessarily going to walk out, you know, staggered by its brilliance. Right. Uh, I'm extremely fond of him, and I think that he's uh, a national treasure. So I guess I would recommend that people go see the movie, pay pay money for a ticket to see the movie, but also consider walking out of it. Yeah, I agree that he's a national treasure, but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily you know on a, on a great role in his career right now. I might rather see him right now being a film teacher and historian and archivist and doing something with his amazing knowledge of world cinema as opposed to cranking out things that sort of look like great old movies. Well, Troy, thank you so much for joining me. I feel like this movie has been well and thoroughly spoiled. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining me on this Slate Spoiler Special. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.